second reading is Philippians 2, verse 1 through 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, turn it off. Perfect. Thanks, Ben. All right. Well, very warm welcome uh, to all of you and those of you uh, watching this online. Uh, Today is the last day of our series, Mindful, which has been focused on uh, mental health. What is good mental health. I would propose that good mental health is the ability to think or to feel or to do life in a way that enables us to enjoy life and to be able to navigate the challenges that life presents. That may be a good vision for you as you sort of look to Uh, having received all of the helpful teaching from Sarah and Josh and Ben these last several weeks, that may be a prayer request for each other, a prayer request even for yourself. Again, good mental health, the ability to think or to feel or to do life in such a way that enables us to enjoy life and to be able to navigate the challenges that life presents. The brilliance of this teaching series, Mindful, has been to kind of turn up the speaker volume for the Christian faith's declaration that wholeness, including mental health, comes on the other end of being realistic That's one of the values here at Mosaic is that we can be realistic and honest with ourselves and with each other. And humble. Humble enough to acknowledge that doing life on our own, American-style rugged individualism, trying to live our lives apart from God, human self-sufficiency, that those approaches to life 
which actually are at their root are rooted in human pride, I can do it on my own. That those approaches do not ultimately guarantee good mental health. Humility is, if you like, the key that can help unlock the wonders of all of the treasures of the Christian life, including good mental health. So perhaps you need to adopt that attitude on this last uh, day that we are focusing on this. Dare to be humble enough to acknowledge that we cannot achieve good mental health on our own. The Old Testament sage uh, King Solomon and the New Testament author, the Apostle Peter, they both argue that humility, dependence on God, is the pathway to wholeness. 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the Apostle Peter citing King Solomon's words in Proverbs. And Peter goes on, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We've explored these last few weeks how we can indeed be humble and acknowledge our need for help, how we can take real concrete steps and in the true words of Peter, cast our anxiety on the one who cares for us. What have been some of these concrete steps? Perhaps you have found just one step, and that is enough. Just one step that you've heard uh, from the pulpit, from Sarah, from Josh, or from Ben. Um, Some of the things that I have found helpful uh, Sarah, several weeks, ago, several weeks ago, encouraged us to engage in reflection, including journaling and meditating and interacting with the Scriptures, but also getting some help, maybe some paid help to reflect, maybe paying a professional counselor to help us begin to kind of see the patterns in our lives that tend to kind of put us into better mental health. Sometimes we need some guidance. I know that in my case, getting some professional counseling has helped me to see the patterns that tend to uh, emphasize good mental health and, on the contrary, those patterns that tend to kind of uh, go away from good mental health. Reflection. Maybe something you want to take forward uh, from this series. And then Ben and Josh reminded us of the value of repentance, changing our minds, turning to God to be changed by him. And that ultimately, and Josh emphasized this, that healing does indeed come from God. It is not just a mere obsession with wellness that's going to deliver on mental health. And then finally, throughout our series, we've had this repeated encouragement to practice gratitude. And that includes all of us. Last week, uh, Susie and I were upstairs with Mosaic Kids, uh, intentionally practicing being mindful and aware of God's goodness. And Janie and Ryder and John and James each shared 
and actually I had them retell specific instances where teachers or parents or friends blessed them. And as they shared those stories of gratitude, you could see the atmosphere change in our small little room upstairs. Just a simple practice, gratitude. And I want to emphasize that before I march into uh, the scriptures. We're going to take another Bible bath. Is that okay, Lynn, to do a Bible bath this morning? We've got, the, we've got the faithful here, so I figured I could do that. In my own journey of mental health and wholeness, I have found that practice privately by myself and in small groups, in community with others, the sharing of narrative-style appreciation stories is one of the most surefire ways to foster good mental health. So when I get up in the morning, perhaps you've had this feeling of being in a vague funk. You wake up and you're just not quite sure how you feel. And what I have begun to do, started doing this during the pandemic, is I will just slowly rattle off in my head five or ten things for which I'm grateful. And I have found that that is one of the best on-ramps for the day. An on-ramp, if you will, to good mental health. And then Susie and I, we've been part of a smaller group that when we gather, we intentionally have each person tell a story from their own lives, recent history or even years ago history, a story that brought them joy. And as each person shares these stories, just like what Ryder and uh, John and James and Janie did last week, as each person shared those sto- shares those stories, you can feel love being stirred afresh in our hearts. And that is why I think the scriptures are so definitive that we should practice thanksgiving. That is the practice that I would commend to you today, to just ruthlessly dare to practice gratitude. But there's more, because we have a sermon series, and so I have to preach on something else. Right, Taylor? Okay. Now, there may be some of us online, some of us here today, who have been struggling not just during this series, but have been struggling for years with poor or even declining mental health. If that is you, I want you to hear two words. These are the words of Jesus spoken three times in the New Testament record. One to a woman who had been sick for 12 years, very long time. One spoken to a man who had been paralyzed his whole life, a very long time, and one to his own disciples who for weeks and months at a time experienced heartache and discouragement. And these are the words of Jesus that he said to them who had been experiencing a decline in their health, their mental health. This is what Jesus said to them. Take heart. Those words, take heart, 
have value because they are coming not from some uh, nice psychologist, not from some kind friend, but from the living God. Take heart. Those words have credibility and real hope. Today in the Christian year, you know, next Sunday we're going to start with Advent, that march towards Christmas where we remember God coming to this earth in the person of Jesus, when we also remember that Jesus will one day return. All that is packaged into Advent. That's the beginning of the Christian calendar year. But today is the last Sunday of the Christian calendar year. And for many denominations, this is known as Christ the King Sunday. Every Sunday, Christ is King. But we are emphasizing that today. And many, millions of people around the, the planet today are hearing those, that phrase, Christ the King. And that's why uh, I had uh, Ben read from Psalm uh, 90, 93. Because the language of that psalm is the kind of language worthy of a king. Just a few of the uh, precious phrases from that psalm. He reigns. Jesus tells you and I to take heart. And that has value because he sits at the control center of the universe. God is sovereignly ordering things generally and specifically in our lives. He reigns. He's in control. He is robed in majesty. Jesus, who says to us, take heart. He is worthy of our ad admiration. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our praise. He is armed with strength. Jesus is not a weakling. He is meek and lowly, but he has been vindicated and raised to the control center of the universe. Ruling and reigning, he is reliable, he is capable, and he does it again and again. Jesus is in the business of saving and changing lives, which is why he can say, take heart. Another line from what Ben read, he is from all eternity. There is no era or event in history that is a surprise to Jesus. He can say, take heart to Mike in any season of Mike's life. Nothing surprises him. And he is mightier than the breakers of the sea. Maybe you've had that experience of being at the ocean, being on the beach, and you, you get knocked down by some massive wave. Jesus is stronger than that. He is stronger than any metaphorical wave that might knock us down. And... This is why Christ is king. All of that. But, you know, if Jesus was just this ethereal, majestic, non-bodily being that we worshipped, it wouldn't quite have the value that it has because Jesus 
came. This is what we'll be celebrating at Advent. Jesus came and experienced all the junkiness of life that we experience and which tends to challenge our mental health. So, for example, Jesus experienced many struggles. Uh, this is, these are some slides from Josh's message a few weeks ago. Uh, he was tempted by the devil uh, in his weakness uh, with power, relevance, and shortcutting his mission. People called him illegitimate. People questioned his calling, his identity, and his purpose. People doubted his sanity. I think oftentimes when we feel undermined by others, doubted, that is something that Jesus can relate to directly. Jesus also encountered misunderstanding. Anyone ever been misunderstood by those closest to them? He was misunderstood by his own family. And what's crazy to think about is that Jesus could see angels and hear God's voice when no one else could. Multiple demands pulling on Jesus. These are all the struggles that he faced. Uh, Closer to the crucifixion, he sweat blood because he had such mental anguish. And he was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends on his loneliest night. And then there were false accusations abounding about him. Do not discount the fact that Jesus can relate to the mistreatment and maltreatment that we all experience in this junky world. Jesus can relate. He has compassion. He is trustworthy. And the New Testament book of Hebrews says he can sympathize with us. We have a Savior who can sympathize with us. So what more can we say um, for our series? Well, I want us to consider uh, what I call the most important and the most valuable. Um, And along the way, we're going to, uh, just to satisfy Lynn, we're going to take a Bible bath, okay? So we're going to review some of the history of the Scriptures to build our confidence in God's precious Word, the Bible. Because ultimately, we are defined by what God says about us through His promises in this book. So it's important that we spend time reviewing and uh, retelling one another why we can be confident of the promises in the Scripture. The second reading that Ben read uh, uh, was uh, from the Apostle Paul, his letter of correspondence to the church at Philippi, which was the first Christian congregation in Europe. Historical perspective, and, you know, preaching is daring to tell the truths of the Scriptures, but it's mediated through personality. And so I'm sorry, you have my personality today. I'm a professor, so Lord have mercy, okay? Um, But I find it helpful to kind of think about the context in which, uh, for instance, Philippians, the second reading that uh, Ben read, was authored. So in the first century, the Roman government provided postal service only for official governmental documents. So, private letters, like the one that Ben read, had to be sent by special messengers or friendly travelers. And when writers like Paul, who is the author of most of the books of the New Testament, when writers like Paul authored these letters, they did so 
And maybe this is helpful, uh, kids, to kind of imagine. They wrote with a reed pen on either papyrus or authentic animal skin parchment. If anyone wants to get me a nice gift for the Mosaic Christmas party, I have queued up on Amazon authentic animal skin parchment that you can order and give to me, and I would be most grateful this Christmas. And it's cool because this is the kind of stuff that the Apostle Paul had his secretary and scribes write on. So a sheet normally was about 10 to 12 inches in size, and it accommodated about 200 words. So the next time you're writing a thank you note or a Christmas card, just imagine that, 10 to 12 inches, both directions, both dimensions, about 200 words. And then when it was sent, it was folded and rolled like this, and then sealed to ensure privacy. And Paul's practice of writing letters was widespread for the first several decades of the church. Uh, His letters played a key role in raising the faith of the early 7,500-odd Christians in the world. Uh, This is what one historian says. By the end of the first century, approximately 7,500 people belonged to the way of Jesus. That's what we're in the business of doing here at Mosaic, uniting people in the way of Jesus. We didn't start it. There was a club of 7,500 in the first century. And they met regularly in the houses of richer church members, textile merchants, Roman soldiers, and other professionals. These churches communicated with each other through traveling preachers and the exchange of letters, written instructions, and histories about their Jewish founder, Jesus Christ, of course. But key question Where did these written histories about Jesus come from? This is an important question because it goes to the heart of the reliability of the claims of the Christian faith, including the assurance of statements like Jesus, take heart in his promise of bringing healing, his declaration that we can make real progress even in our mental health. Well, initially, these stories about Jesus were transmitted not through writing, but by word of mouth. After the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, much of the history of Jesus was communicated orally. So, for example, you may have heard the story about the guy who carried Jesus' cross as Jesus was marched off to his crucifixion. Uh, That guy's name... Simon of Cyrene, and he and many others had traveled to Jerusalem and had personally witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. And then we're told that there were 500 later who saw Jesus after he had been resurrected. Simon of Cyrene, I can't wait to meet this guy in heaven because he's got to be very fit. Simon of Cyrene had come from super far away to Jerusalem. He had come from North Africa. And he wasn't the only one who had traveled a long distance. People like Simon of Cyrene, after they attended and witnessed and and observed what happened at the crucifixion, 
and the resurrection. They returned to their homes. And what did they do? Of course, they shared verbally what they had, saw, what they had seen. Then later, after the resurrection, another large group of travelers would come to Jerusalem, this time for the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And while these people are there, they witness the incredible outpouring with visible supernatural signs, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then what did they do? They went home, again, verbally sharing by word of mouth the amazing things going on. So you have all these people who personally witnessed the key central events of the birth of the Christian faith, and they're sharing all this by word of mouth. And the oral transmission of the story of Jesus had a true effect. People and families were changed. So, for example, Simon of Cyrene goes back to North Africa. His sons, Rufus and Alexander, end up getting on a boat, going in the Mediterranean across northward to places like Rome, and they get involved in those early key decades of the history of the church in the Greco-Roman world. But, you know, even those early Christians knew that word of mouth was not enough. There needed to be some other wide-ranging form of communication to pass on the message of the good news of Jesus. So they turned to written letters and other written accounts. Now, again, bear with me. And again, if it helps, cue up the authentic animal skin parchment on Amazon, which you can order for me. So when someone like Paul would write a letter to a church like the church at Philippi, like the one that Ben read, they would dictate to a secretary or scribe what to write down. And most of these ancient letters had a kind of a standard pattern, kind of like today when you send an email, although with my students, a lot of this is out the door. It's always nice to get a nice salutation like, dear Dr. Kastner, or hello, wonderful person. <laughs> but a lot of that, because of our informal uh, texting and everything, we've abandoned so many of these conventions. But going back 1,950 years, the practice was to include an introduction listing the name of the sender, like Paul, and then the recipient, like, say, the church at Philippi, followed by a formal greeting inquiring about the recipient's health and then some kind of thanksgiving formula. Then there was the body or purpose of the writing, and then a conclusion consisting, as you might imagine, of appropriate remarks and a farewell. The farewell, it's kind of interesting, was normally written in the hand of the sender, the person dictating. And why was that done? To show the reader that it was really them who had been dictating the letter. So that's why you see, for instance, um, in Galatians chapter 6, chapter 6, the last chapter of Galatians, Paul makes this comment after having dictated most of the letter. He says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. That would be like Susie writing a note to me saying, can you believe how amazing my penmanship is? 
And then these various letters sent around to all the churches were not the same length, of course. Don't you know that all of us, we get short emails and long emails, right? And it was all determined on the needs of the audience. In the case of Paul, most of his letters are addressing questions, problems, or bad practices in churches that he's looking to correct. Paul's letters were written to communicate ideas, which we have kind of packaged together into doctrine and understanding of theology, but they were originally written to communicate ideas to further the spiritual growth of the churches he founded. It's one of the precious things about the New Testament. When you sit down perhaps by yourself, with a cup of coffee, and you're reading the Scriptures. Those words were originally written to foster spiritual growth, not mere ideas. And they were written to connect the needs of real humans like you and me with the supernatural resources of the living God. And you can see this. So any of you bring a a hard copy Bible with you this morning? Everyone else is just using a phone. So if you have one of these ancient uh, documents uh, called a leather-bound Bible, um, if you go to the table of contents, like if you don't have the Bible memorized and you have to use the table of contents, which is totally fine, you'll notice that the page numbers of all the parts that Paul wrote, so from Romans to Philemon, get increasingly shorter. And that's how the Bible was put together. So a lot, one of the reasons why we get so confused when we're reading the New Testament is that it doesn't make sense chronologically in all cases. That's because Paul's letters are, uh, beginning with Romans, the longest of his letters, down to Philemon, the shortest, are listed in the order of decreasing length. Okay. Useless trivia from a professor. There you go. (laughs) But I like that because it reminds me that the needs of different audiences differ. They did 2,000 years ago as they do today. And over time, we discovered that letters were not enough. It would be helpful to have actual biographical narratives about the life of Jesus. And these are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the Gospel uh, books that we will be spending a lot of time reading during the opening of Advent. And the Gospels and then all these letters were packaged together into something like what we have today in our Bibles. So, next question. What did Christians do during this intervening time, those several decades of the Christian faith, when they didn't have full-blown copies uh, of the whole New Testament? What did they do? Well, they would come eagerly to church, maybe at the Church of Philippi, and they would listen intently to a letter being read aloud. Or maybe one of the, old, one of the uh, ancient practices of the church was if someone had a copy of the Gospel of Mark or one of the other Gospels, they would have everyone stand while they read the Gospel to 
acknowledged that this was about the life of Jesus, their king. And those gospel accounts are, like the letters, precious to us. But, you know, in the middle of all of this, these, de- these sort of intermediary decades between Jesus' uh, ministry, his death, his burial, his ascension, re- resurrection and ascension, and when we get to having full-blown copies of the Bible, there were many legitimate debates about what is the core essence of the Christian faith? What's most important? You know, I have students ask me that all the time in my job at K-State. What's most important for this class? And in one of the earliest statements, verbal statements, that Paul made, he addresses this question. And he references it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. So Paul begins... Let's bring this up here. Perfect. So Paul... In 1 Corinthians 15, he references a statement that he had made verbally earlier. He says, what I received, I passed on to you. It's a past tense reference. I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul, who had been totally changed from being a persecutor of the church to a leader in the church who had played a key part in establishing these congregations, including Philippi, to whom he was writing in the letter that Ben read. Paul is saying that he had previously made a statement about what was most important, what was the key essence, what was, the, what was essential for the Christian faith. And again, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the key for us. When we gather here at Mosaic, um, Ben and Josh and Sarah always do a great job preaching. And Alicia does a great job innovating some lesson for the kids. But ultimately, the high point is the Lord's table. Because that is the central celebration of what Paul is saying is of most importance. And that is actually why you and I can take heart. You can be sure that one day, because Jesus rose, one day you and I will rise and experience total healing, including total mental health healing. And until then, we can be confident because Jesus was resurrected and lived a life where he extended his healing power to others. In the last 2,000 years, there have been so many instances of people being uh, experiencing wholeness and healing 
We pray for everyone to be healed, including taking these concrete steps in our mental health. And I believe that if we keep praying for each other and keep taking these steps, I believe that because of the guaranteed, visible power of, the, of Christ the King, that some of us will be healed. Some of us will be delivered. We may not all experience complete healing, but we will one day have that. But we can be confident that His power is real and at work today. And it was latching onto this promise that was so key for the early Christians in the centuries that followed. So we've got an artistic piece here. This is a tomb or a sarcophagus that was um, from the 7th century. It's the tomb for a dude named Theodore. Um, he was an archbishop, so he was kind of a dignitary in the early church. But I love what's written on the side uh, in Latin. It says, here rests in peace Theodore, good man. I like that. There wasn't this emphasis on his title. It's just good man. And much of the early um, tombstones for the elite of society, the wealthy in society, would have these elaborately decorated tombs celebrating the promise of the resurrection. And you can understand why. I mean, in the Greco world, for most of human history, um, we have had disease, we have had war. We have had all kinds of trappings of life that make longevity in life comparatively rare to, to, to today, to what we experience today. And so there was this justifiable um, uh, declaration and reminder to everyone that the resurrection and complete healing was on offer. And if you look here at the... Um, the sarcophagus, you can see different symbols. So you have uh, victory emblems, laurel wreaths and the like. Um, there's a reference to 1 Corinthians 15.54, death being swallowed up in victory. Uh, the centerpiece uh, there in the side, right in the middle of the tomb's front face is a monogram made up of the superimposed Greek letters chi, the X, and rho, looks like a P. These are the first two letters in the title Christos, and therefore shorthand for Jesus Christ. And then hanging on the arms, we have an Alpha and the Omega. Again, going back to the psalm that Ben read, Jesus is the King from all eternity, Alpha to Omega. And then there's this barreled lid circled by the laurel wreath, symbol of victory in Roman times, but with crosses clearly showing that victory comes through the cross, the ultimate symbol of death transposed into life. These declarations, in this case on a sarcophagus, are the same declarations that we can take hold of ourselves as guarantee that God is in the business of resurrecting and changing lives. 
But you know, Paul was realistic, and he knew that it would be foolish to tell people to just put up with the junkiness of life until they died and were raised. He wanted to give practical pastoral care to his churches, which is what he's doing when he writes to the church at Philippi, so that they would begin to experience, taste a different quality of life because of the power and example of Jesus. And that that goes to this next point that I want to emphasize to kind of take us home. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, is exhorting them, is encouraging them to give to one another the most valuable gift they could give, and that was their attention. When you think about a gift you want to give a friend or a family member this Christmas, other than maybe animal skin parchment, it is your attention. In a distracted information overloaded age, attention is increasingly elusive. But spending time giving our attention to one another, this is what Paul is exhorting the church at Philippi uh, to doing. So he, he says, um, you know, he's already said elsewhere that the most important thing is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Boom, we hold on to that. But then he says, but if there's any practical encouragement from all of that, from being united in Christ who was raised, if there's any comfort, any fellowship that we're going to have, then we need to be like-minded with Jesus. And then he goes into this beautiful, it was actually one of the earliest Christian hymns, this beautiful summary of what made Jesus such a humble king. I'll reread it. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Christ Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus was willing to set aside all the privileges of being the king to give attention to us. In fact, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself. And in my um, personal opinion, because God has created all of humanity... While we learn about our faith through this book, we can also learn a lot about how to give attention to others from other cultures, even ones that may not be expressly Christian in all cases. Because there is God's image imprinted on every single human. That is why I don't care who you're talking to or what uh, culture you're interacting with, There is always something special and dignified about every single human person in history and today. And what's the most populous country on the planet? China, 1.4 billion people. Do you think there's a pretty good chance that there's someone in China who would be able to teach us something about how to give attention to one another? I think so. So, uh, Suzanne, if you want to go this 
so there is a um, uh, so Chinese, both Mandarin and Cantonese are are they're an ideographic language, okay? And basically, the symbols that we see in like this communicate um, multiple levels of meaning. So this is the Chinese Ting, T-I-N-G, Ting symbol, which is the Chinese symbol for listen. And there's so many instructive elements to this symbol. Um, You can kind of see here. So when we listen, upper left, you see, we should use our ears, duh, right? But we also know, if I'm listening to Amy, it's going to be helpful if I not only listen, but if I look at Amy. So we listen with our ears and our eyes. But if I'm talking to Taylor and he's telling me about his job and I tap into that with some level of heart level interest, then I'm listening not only with my ears and my eyes, but also my heart. And notice in the lower left, king. That connotes the idea that when Say, if Alicia is listening to Drew, Alicia is to metaphorically elevate the words of Drew to those of a king. Respect, listen, heed. And then, finally, on the uh, upper right, you have I or focus. Sorry, you have focus and then ten or maximum. The idea is, is that we really want to focus at a level of 10 out of 10. You ever paid attention but not really paid attention? These are all um, helpful levels of what it looks like to give attention. Now, practically, uh, I find it helpful to use a acrostic. So the next slide uh, talks about this a little bit. So, If I go and meet somebody, say for coffee, and I'm going to try to put into practice those ting things, I'm going to treat them like a king, I'm going to listen to them with my ears, eyes, and heart, I'm going to focus as best I can. But sometimes it's helpful to ask some questions. So I will ask the question, hey, how are you doing on the sachet scale? Sounds kind of weird. But sachet is an acronym that stands for sad, angry, scared, happy, excited, tender. And I'll ask the person just to spend a little bit of time dialoguing with me, sharing with me which of those, perhaps all of them, perhaps just one of them, best describes how they're feeling that day. And I find that this acronym, which Susan and I received from our friends Pat and Susan Schneiders, is one of the best ways to facilitate giving attention to one another. So you might, you know, we've, we've tried to commend to you in this series different practical tools, and many of these are on the website already. But here's another one, sachet. You might put this um, in your uh, suite of tools to practice ting, to practice listening and giving attention to others. And again, that is what we... Um, are to do because our king considered others more important than himself. And we can do the same. 
Paul, in the longest of his letters, Romans, he talks about what it should look like when we get together, uh, whether that be for a Sunday service, midweek meetup, Christmas party, a form group, whatever. And this is what he says. He says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And one of the best ways to get into that space with one another is to give that greatest gift you can give, attention to them. Maybe that is the key to your and my experience this coming Advent, that we would be not showing up to just do things, not showing up to be heard, but showing up to mutually encourage each other as we give attention to one another. Amen? Thank you for listening to the Mosaic Church Podcast. For more teachings, resources, and other news, please visit mosaicmhk.com.